0: Welcome to Sex Spoken Here with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I am a sex coach and relationship psychologist and created this show to help you solve any sexual problems, learn about all things sexy, sensual, and intimate, and create your ideal lasting relationship. In my virtual therapy room, I answer questions, interview experts, and provide tips that you can use straight away. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies To help you create a problem free, exciting sex life. Make sure you join us to be up to date on all events and to easily access coaching at www.the intimacy coach.com. Welcome to my virtual therapy room. I am Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, and this is Sex Spoken Here. Remember that this podcast deals with adult themes, so if you don't have privacy, you might wish to put on your headphones. This week, we're making a diversion from the sex love stories that I have been running over the past six weeks or so. When the headlines broke about Harvey Weinstein, my first response was an internal deep sigh that in the 21st century, men still feel free to oppress women with impunity as more and more women stood up to say me too. I found myself filling with rage as it became clear that this was the status quo rather than an anomaly. Then as the allegations spread to other prominent men in Hollywood, in politics, my range turned to despair at how pervasive the harassment and intimidation is. Initially this all played out over gender lines, prominent men sexually harassed women. The focus was on entertainment in the arts, and then it moved to politics. Everybody agreed that this happened in companies and corporations as well. And then the allegations from men began. Thus far, these allegations have been against other men. However, I have worked with many men over the years who have been sexually harassed and assaulted by women, and women who have been harassed and assaulted by women as well. I need to point out that the vast majority of harassment goes on from men to either women or men. That is men as the harassers. But the reason it goes in all directions is because sexual harassment is not actually about sex. It is about power. Sir John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg's Acton's best known remark was power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He went on to say, great men are almost always bad men. Is this so, or does power just tend to bring out a person's pre-existing ethical standards? Research suggests that power allows the true self to emerge. Other research highlights the paradox of power which is that the personality traits that allow the person to gain power seem to disappear as soon as control is gained. So people gain power by being friendly and polite and connecting with others and being empathic. That is part of how they rise up the ladder. And so the paradox of power suggests that once they get to the top of the ladder. The empathy goes out the window, which does seem to be the case. To gain power, you have to court the favor of people who can put you in power. But people in power have more choices. They are less likely to consider the position or situation of others as they did when they were trying to gain power. And this is in part because they're not expected to consider others. When someone gains power, other people are often seen in terms of what they can do for the one in power. And if the battle for power was a harsh one, they can be seen as the spoils of war. Why else does power corrupt? It's suggested that it inflates the ego and encourages us to act from unconscious or subconscious desire. Well, this makes sense to me. So the more power you have, The more you feel positively about yourself, the more important you might think you are. You may feel you're an exception to the usually agreed upon norms to do with the way in which we treat people and people's personal boundaries at work. Power grants license to act decisively, seemingly without a concern about the consequences because people in power can feel that they are insulated from responsibility. People can become hypocrites. They may know the right thing to do, but power allows them the ability to more easily rationalize unethical behavior. French philosopher, Paul Michel Foucault, addressed the relationship between power and knowledge by looking at power dynamics and how they're used as a form of social control. He emphasized that power changes our thinking drastically. And that is that this in terms changes our behavior. So the fact that our thinking changes, changes our behavior. If we are to address the pattern of sexual harassment in society, we must address the changes in thinking that power creates. In order to address or make any substantive changes, we have to deconstruct our long-term ways of thinking about men and women, about the benefits of power, the permissions that power grants in any industry. We need to look at the perceived rewards of reaching a place of power. But we also need to look... At our definitions of personal boundaries. These are the limits and rules that people create to identify acceptable and safe ways for others to interact with them and behave towards them, and also how they will react when other people violate those boundaries. Boundaries are made up from our beliefs, our attitudes, past experiences, and societal norms. Jacques Lacan saw these boundaries as layered in hierarchy from the societal boundaries to the smaller cultural subgroup boundaries, to family boundaries, and then to those of the individual. These two concepts, power and boundaries, are central to the issue of sexual harassment. From present society, the idea that a person in power has a right to violate personal, physical and sexual boundaries pervades many workplace settings. He is only flirting or he doesn't mean it are frequent excuses for boundary violations. The lack of swift action when boundaries are violated only serves to keep these beliefs in place and to strengthen them. The fact that we will believe a man making an accusation almost immediately, whereas it may take three or four women to make an equivalent accusation against one person before we will believe them, should indeed does highlight the differences in the way that we regard men and women in terms of their honesty, in terms of um, the, the things that are appropriate and the boundaries that they set. There's a saying, strong fences make good neighbors. And this is true. This is essential when talking about boundaries and rules in relation to appropriate behavior in the workplace and sexual behavior in the workplace. Relationships work best when everyone knows what the boundaries are and the rules are in advance and agrees to them, and when everyone knows what the criteria are for advancement and where they fall on them. Sexual harassment works because it undermines respect, shames the person who is being harassed, and diminishes his or her power. Sexual harassment controls using fear and shame. To get rid of its power, the fear and shame need to be broken. Speaking out is step one to ending the fear and shame and to setting clear and solid boundaries. It's not good enough to stand by because you're not the one being harassed. You become culpable if you are unwilling to stand up with the person who is making the allegation to support that person when you have seen harassment and boundary violations go on. One of the problems highlighted often is the multiple meanings conveyed in our language and how we often don't speak about sex and love directly. For example, we flirt. So this can lead to misunderstandings. In addition, some people suggest that men and women communicate differently. Joking about sex is a more male form of communication. A number of people have tried to suggest that perhaps harassment isn't actually as prevalent, but that there are just lots of misunderstandings. Unfortunately, this is bullshit. People in power have used sex and sexuality to harass through history. So first, we need to look at and be clear about what our societal norms are. And we need to be redrawing those norms. We need to be setting clear boundaries. It's not enough just to do uh, sensitivity training. We need to be making rules clear with clear punishments for violations. And then we also need to take personal responsibility. As an adult... I need to take responsibility for my boundaries. There is law in place to address harassment now. And although the journey of taking a complaint to court or tribunal is an awful one, it is still a remedy available to me. As an adult, I need to be clear about setting my boundaries and speaking out at the first sign of violation. If someone flirts with me and I find this uncomfortable, I need to say so. And I need to make sure that my behavior is appropriate as well. It's not okay if I flirt and then complain about someone flirting with me. Now this happens quite a bit more than one might think. And it's because um, I might be flirting with somebody and I like them and they like me. So there doesn't seem to be a consequence to that. But the person who's flirting with me is not somebody I'm comfortable with. And therefore, because I don't like this person or because they're my boss or because I'm, I'm simply not attracted to them, I may not be comfortable and then I might want to complain about their behavior. But if I'm indulging in the same behavior, that's just not on. How do you set boundaries when you haven't ever really learned the skill? Well, first you need to examine your own experiences of being a victim of boundary violation or harassment. So, um, what I advise as an exercise is to sit down, have a journal with you, or a tablet, or however it is that you like to take notes. Sit down and think about the first time you experienced a boundary violation or sexual harassment. Make a note of it. You can describe it in as much or as little detail as you want. Just bring the experience up so that you can remember it, that you can feel it. Then note how you felt at the time. How did you react to that violation or harassment? Did you confront the person who violated you? Did you tell anyone else? Were there sanctions? If there were, how did you feel about the sanctions? Does this incident still impact on you today? If so, how? What needs to change in order to stop that impact? Another thing you might note is if this um, experience took place in the workplace and if the person who violated your boundaries was higher up in the chain of command than you were, it's likely you'll find that if it was a a peer, you would feel less uncomfortable than you will if it is somebody who's higher up in the chain of command because the pressures are different. After you've done this, think about the next experience, if there is one, and ask yourself the same questions. What helps is if you can notice if you see a pattern of responses, reactions, and then see if you have any new insights as a result to looking at these events and these patterns. Next, think about the times when you violated someone else's boundaries or sexually harassed them. Now I can hear some of you already saying, oh God, I've never done that. I've never behaved badly like that. But most people can find at least one experience where they violated someone else's boundaries. Maybe they hugged somebody without asking, or maybe they hugged somebody they barely knew just because they thought the person was attractive, who was clearly sending out signals that they didn't want to be touched. How did you feel at the time of this incident? How did the person respond? How did you feel when you understood that you had violated their boundaries and or sexually harassed them? Did you apologize? Did you make amends? Were there consequences? How did you feel about the consequences? Does this incident still impact you today? If so, how? And what needs to happen in order to stop the impact? Next, set new boundaries. To do this, you need to figure out what your boundaries are. I realize this sounds obvious. However, lots of people don't pay attention to what they're comfortable with and uncomfortable with. And they sort of allow others to make the decision until they feel violated. And then they're really upset that they feel violated and either blame other people or really unsure as to what to do because they realize that they were never clear about what their boundaries were. Write out your boundaries in relation to different settings. For example, maybe you note that you don't like to be hugged by people who do not know you well. So you set this to be hugged by people that are really close friends, families, or lovers, and perhaps you you want to be the person to initiate those hugs. You note that you don't like to be touched at all by anyone you don't know, so you choose not to shake hands when you meet people. And if you do this, you explain to people that you don't shake hands. There are enough people who don't do that that you need to give them a reason. You don't need to say, I don't shake hands because I don't like to, uh, I don't know. Just saying, I'm sorry, I don't shake hands. So the person said it's not personal to them. Once you've written your boundaries out, start practicing implementing your boundaries. Pay attention to your responses you do. The more you practice, the easier it'll be, become to, to implement them consistently. If your boundaries are violated, practice handling the situation calmly and firmly. Pay attention to the impact on you and the other party as you handle the situation. When you've completed these steps, you may gain new insight into your patterns of experience, and this may lead to positive changes in feeling and behavior. If you find that you are still impacted by these experiences, or if you see a long pattern of experiences, you may benefit from specific therapy or coaching sessions to clarify the ongoing issues and resolve any that are still problematic. I have noticed that the focus on women being victimized via sexual harassment and sexual assault in other settings and the incidence of sexual abuse has led to some drastic changes in boundaries in school settings in particular and in workplace settings. The pendulum seems to have swung to a completely opposite pole in some settings. Touch is no longer acceptable at all since all touch is seen as sexual and a violation of individual boundaries, potentially dangerous. This trend is very worrying to me. Touch is a necessary part of human life and lots of touch is healing and appropriate. There is lots of non-sexual touch that is really, really valuable in keeping people healthy and happy and um, in improving human relationships. Teaching young children to see touches inherently sexual and to see most sexual touches inappropriate will lead us to a generation of adults who have even more shame and more issues around sex and sexuality. It isn't necessary for this to happen. It doesn't actually protect children from sexual abuse. In fact, what it does is it raises allegations that are actually not abuse or inappropriate. And it doesn't really catch any more abusers. It does nothing to actually stop abusers who are predators and who are good at what they do. It is possible to create healthy boundaries around touch, sex, and sexual curiosity without adding shame and fear to these messages. Sexual curiosity is a normal part of sexual development. First, young children, as young as 18 months, discover their own bodies and they experiment to see how their bodies respond. It feels good so they do more of it. Then young children become curious about the bodies of others. Children of three and four years old will often ask both same and opposite sex parents to see their genitals And ask questions about genitals if they do not see their parents or siblings. Responding with anger will create shame and upset. There's absolutely nothing wrong with curiosity. It is easy to teach a child that certain things, like masturbation, are to be done in private without shaming the child. It's also easy to set a limit with the child, a boundary with the child, without being shaming. I know you're curious. Let's look at a book where there are some pictures because I'm not going to show you me because it's private to me is the kind of boundary that you could set that includes no shame and no embarrassment. As children become curious, they become curious about their friends as well. Playing doctor and playing house usually involve looking at each other's private parts. In the 60s and 70s, children who were caught were told they shouldn't do this, but they were not severely punished. Most adults understood this was a normal part of sexual development. Sometimes it progressed to a kiss, sometimes a bit of touching, but in a friendly way and with no coercion. Unfortunately, adults sometimes shame their children when they caught them, but they tended to do this on a mild level as this was not seen as serious and people did not start talking about playing doctor as abuse. It shouldn't be seen as serious. Healthy curiosity is positive. Telling a child that being curious about someone's hair, ears, or the color of their skin is okay, but being curious about their penis or vulva is not okay, only serves to give a message that there's something different, shameful, or wrong about those parts of her body. Playing doctor or house is usually a cooperative activity. The only time that adults should get concerned is if there's coercion or a child is trying to insert large objects into the other child's vagina or anus, or if it is a much older child wanting to do things with a much younger child. If you shame the child, you will teach the child that sexual exploration and questions are to be hidden and that there's something inherently wrong with sex. When we teach them that something is wrong with sex in their bodies, we set them up for boundary violations later on. When we are shamed, we find it harder to speak up for ourselves. When we react, when someone treats us with disrespect or tries to violate our boundaries. If I love myself and I respect myself, I am far less likely to allow you to disrespect me. If you I'm much more like a trend um, of telling children, of doctors telling children, for example, when they come for an examination person, that, that, that nobody should be examining their private parts unless... And it is really made an absolute. pre. Obviously, what we used to tell children is is that um, if somebody tries an adult, a trusted adult, and we would say that an adult asking to play with their private parts or see their private parts or touch their private parts bears caution. I wouldn't say to a young child, bears caution, but we would tell the child to Go and talk to a trusted adult, a different trusted adult, about it. I think the distinction is important. is because if you tell them no one should ever look at you, no one should ever try to touch you, you give them um, the idea that all uh, touch of private parts is wrong or bad. you stifle their ability to explore and then there's a huge amount of shame if they allow any exploration because you're not making distinctions. I think the message changed when people became aware that there was more child on child abuse. But even in this, there's usually an age gap between the children. Um, So there are ways of framing this and teaching children to keep safe without giving them a message that, Anybody who um, is curious about their sexual parts is bad and abusive and should be avoided. Because when we try to criminalize normal sexual behavior, we create problems for later. There was a case in Wisconsin earlier this year when a six-year-old boy was actually charged with felony sexual assault on a five-year-old girl for playing butt doctor, and this is a perfect example. The children were found playing by the girl's mother. She had her panties around her ankles, and he was touching the outside of her bum. Some people allege that he had his finger in her bum. The mother of the girl went to the police, and the district attorney decided to charge this child. Now, I would laugh at the absurdity of this, but the consequences are enormous. The boy, if convicted, would have to register as a sex offender from when he was 18 years old through the rest of his life. Could you imagine that? Being seen as a sex offender for playing doctor, alongside people who are sex offenders for multiply raping people or multiply molesting people. The little girl wasn't upset, so this game was consensual. What message are we giving this boy? He's told he's bad, not that his behavior is bad, and he doesn't even understand why everyone's so upset with him, nor does his little girlfriend. Her mother's very upset, but she doesn't understand why, because she too is shamed. He is likely to develop anxiety at the least, and he could develop symptoms of depression. And this incident may well affect his sexual development. That's quite likely, which up until that point was healthy. It isn't difficult to tell the difference between sexual assault or abuse and playing doctor. If a child is forcing another, usually a much younger child, to engage in sexual acts or play, this is abusive. If a child is upset by being touched or looked at, and the other child does not stop, this is abusive. Otherwise, it's experimentation and it's a perfect opportunity to teach kids to set boundaries. We need to consider the messages we're giving our children as we work to teach men and women more equitable ways of relating to each other and to teach them to stop using sex and sexuality to control and denigrate others. Pay attention to the specific education you give your children around gender, sex, and sexuality, and you will have a much better chance of creating an emotionally and sexually healthy adult. Today, I spoke about sexual harassment, sexual assault, boundaries, violation of boundaries, playing doctor, and teaching children about sex, sexuality, gender, and boundaries. If you were triggered, or if any of this resonates with you, please do email me at drbisby at the dot com. That's drbisby, D-R-B-I-S-B-E-Y, at the-intimacy, that's I-N-T-I-M-A-C-Y-coach.com. Thanks for joining me this week on Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Write to me with suggestions for the show, questions you want answered at Dr Bisbee at the-intimacy-coach.com. Do follow me on Twitter and Instagram where I am, at Dr. Bisbee, and follow me on Facebook, check out my YouTube channel. Both of these are Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee or Lori Beth Bisbee. I have a TV channel on the BonBon Network. For a free 30-minute strategy session with me, go to https colon forward slash forward slash the-intimacy-coach.com forward slash and click on the button that says schedule now on the contact page. Please leave me a review on iTunes and or Stitcher if you enjoyed the, the show. The next four people who leave a review will receive a 10% discount on any of my services. And that is in addition to any discounts that are going on that are seasonal. For example, at the moment, all of my services have a 25% discount for Black Friday. This discount will go from now until the 5th of December, so if you want to take advantage of any of my coaching services, my live event for um, January in Amsterdam, or my live event, which is in February in Los Angeles, my online course, or as I said, any of my coaching packages, visit my website, choose the package you want, And in the checkout page, when you pay for it, put in Black Friday and you will receive the seasonal discount. If you leave a review, once I've seen the review, I will give you a code for the additional 10% discount as well. Thanks for listening and I really hope to see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes or on Stitcher. And make sure you head over to www.the-intimacy-coach.com to subscribe for free newsletter updates to help you create and sustain an exciting, trouble-free sexual life. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes on all topics, sexy, sensual, and intimate. Thanks for listening.